Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there and welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast, an episode that has all my podcasting, just got all my podcasting juices flowing here, Murph. Hello, Murph and Ken. Oh, hey there, Ken. Uh, I'm hi, Kieran and Owen. One of the greatest Irish sports people of all time will be right here in studio. Henry Shefflin has his book out. It's called Henry Shefflin, The Autobiography. <laughs> a simple title, a very, very good book. I've, I've you, know what, you know what they were going to call it? King Henry. They weren't actually... Well, I, I can t- I, do, you want, do you want me to take you inside the, the, the publisher's conversation here? Mm-hmm. We can't just call it Henry Shefflin, the autobiography. What can we call it? This is King, a hypothetical situation. Well, it? obviously, yeah. Oh. King, King Henry? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think of that, Henry Shefflin? The entire book is basically about, about how much he hates the whole King Henry thing. So, I mean, I think it's probably only fair that, that, that he, the, the, the name may not shoot the lights out. But the book happens to be very good on. Yeah, I've noticed a phenomenon with sports books in the last maybe six or seven years. Actually, funny, Vincent Hogan uh, uh, goes throughout this one. He also goes throughout Paul McGrath's autobiography. And Paul McGrath very much falls into one box. Essentially, a lot of sports people seem to think that there are only two avenues open to them. The warts and all autobiography in McGrath's case very much so introspective and really laying bare his soul, really, and everything about him. That can also take in naming names, divulging secrets, spilling the beans, you know, that kind of thing where you're being almost more honest than than you should sometimes maybe. And the the opposite side of that is the bland, harmless autobiography that gives no secrets away, but also gives nothing away. No insight into what made them the person that they are. Uh, I think we all know which ones we generally prefer to read, but I think Shefflin's book is very good because it shows that you can give a lot of yourself without actually having to worry that every single last word is going to be parsed for hidden meanings. And for example, he, one of the more, uh, I suppose, juicy parts of it is uh, a passage in the Cork Herders where he talks about their rivalry and says that we never really got on with them in the way we did with, even with Tip, we were always fine afterwards. It was always a little bit different with Cork. Uh, he gives his take on Donald Lowe calling them Stepford Wives and uh, this sort of characterization of Kilkenny as these robotic 
people, uh, almost robotic machines that just follow their leader and uh, don't have any mind of their own. Uh, he says all that, and okay, fair enough, Cork players might get pissed off if they read that, but they've had their say, Donald Oak's had their say, and I think he says it in a respectful enough way. He gives a lot of insight into the level of self-doubt that he's had at key points in his career, not just early on, but even 2009 All-Ireland Final, I was at that with you, Murph, watching Sheff and Sano over a penalty, mm-hmm. which just about won them the game. Uh, assuming he's going to score it, no bother there. He was said he was terrified at that stage because he was going through a real crisis of confidence. His relationship with Cody, finally, I think somebody's given a bit more colour to what it is that makes Cody the successful manager that he is. Lo- loads of great, great stuff in there. Cut a long story short. To yeah. put an autobiography into about 45 seconds. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's our recent uh, meetings with Richie Hogan and Henry Shefflin, but I'm really starting to like the Kilkenny Hurling team now. <laughs> I don't know if this is a positive development. It's taken but, uh, 15 years or so. Well, it's taken 15 years of maybe meeting a few of them and talking to them and realising that they're really good people. They're not robots, after yeah, all. Yeah, Donald Logue mightn't have been 100% right on everything <laughs> that he had to say there. Yeah, you can play that back to me next August. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. We're going to have Henry Sheffin in studio to talk about a lot of that and a whole lot more. Uh, we'll get that going very soon for you. But to mention straight off the top here that today's football podcast is out, although we put it out just before the big Jack Grealish news broke in. Wow. Yeah, the Jack big... who screamed the Irish football fans. <laughs> oh, you know who he is, Irish football fans. Judas Grealish. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a bit of that. There's definitely a bit of that going on on Twitter. So he puts out a little statement saying, oh, you know, I've decided to give my allegiance to England. Not an easy decision because Ireland means a lot to me. However, I have decided to play for the country of my birth. So just making the point there. I think mm. he was actually born in England. So was his father and uh, his mother. <laughs> so really, this shouldn't be that controversial. <laughs> It's just the disappointment, the disappointment that we feel here, um, part of which I suppose is our own disappointment, that we're trapped here uh, with this nationality, this citizenship, that we can't escape like Jack Grealish, that it wasn't just a matter of choice <laughs> for us as it was for him. Uh, That's and not what I'm feeling at all. I wish sort of the man the best. Absolutely. Wish him the best. And it isn't, isn't it a great sign that a young, a young Irishman such as Jack Grealish uh, can be welcomed to, to the bosom of Britannia. And he's shown a bit of ambition as well, you know, going over there. Or trying to, trying to, over there. Trying to make a go of it in the real world, you know. <laughs> uh, if only more of us had that get up and go. Well, there's plenty of plenty of us have that have that get up and go, I suppose. Just none, the go part. in this country, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the question here, I suppose from our point of view, it's it's not really a question of, of uh, whether Grealish is entitled to do what he's done. He 100% is. Um, it's a question of whether we did enough to try and land this big fish, mm. you know? Well, the big question that was written, when this really started blowing up, when, yeah, what match was the Greedish play brilliantly in? And the FA Cup semi-final. Yes, the Cup semi-final, and the English media realised he existed. Mm. Uh, at that stage, a lot of the articles seemed to intimate that what needed to be done, the one thing that could have been done, is well, that wasn't done, was including him in the squad for our tour to America. Yeah. That, that would have at least got him, that wasn't going to tie him to anything, but would have at least... Got him in there. Maybe got him a few new friends. We all want friends. Maybe he would have said, "Look, I love, I love, I love these guys. These Irish guys are great. Um, they're good crack. They're slagging me for being English, but it's good natured." Yeah. So uh, you know, and that see, that seems to be the main misstep. I think other than that, O'Neill seems to have been respectful enough. Gave his father all the distance he needed. Gave Greatish the distance he needed, and that has come to nothing. Would yeah. You, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the d- distance. I mean, why is distance a good thing? You know, here's a, here's a question about this. I mean. For instance, okay, Jack Grealish's agent, Jonathan Barnett, 
recently said about Gareth Bale, and we were talking about it at the time, he's also Gareth Bale's agent. Um, and he wasn't always Jack Grealish's agent either. He's relatively new. But he said, it's cost the boy millions and millions to play for Wales. Uh, imagine if he'd been playing for England at these Euros, you know, what, what he could have done in his sponsorship and marketing sense. Uh, so you can see where Jonathan Barnett's interests are. I mean, the more money his client makes, the more money he makes. He's kind of like, Wales, England, what's the difference? Well, one of them is much more profitable. You know, but obviously Bale chose Wales. He couldn't be saved. As soon as you heard Barnett say that, you kind of thought, well, I wonder what kind of advice he's giving Jack Grealish on his quite similar uh, dilemma. And it's clear he's going to give, be giving him, it's, it's clear the advice he's going to be giving. But that's not to say that Jack Grealish has decided to play for England because he'll make more money that way, although he will make more money that way. That's not to say that's the reason why. The, I think that's to misunderstand what's actually going on here. What actually happens here, every agent tells a player, I'm going to try and make you a load of money. It's kind of the basic part of their pitch. That's, their, that's what they do for players. You know what I mean? Um, but what sets some agents apart from others? Why are some more, more successful than others? It's the ability to ingratiate themselves with the player and the player's family and to earn their trust. Yeah, often the friends, the, sorry, the players seem to see these guys as good friends. Of course. Really close, good pals. It's certainly say Zlatan with, who's his super agent friend again? Um, it's Mino Raiola. Yeah, these kind of, and they become these key figures in their life. Ronaldo and George Mendes. Ronaldo and George yeah. Mendes. Uh, who else? Uh, each other islands. There's a ton of, there's a ton, Raheem Sterling and A.D. Ward. Mm-hmm. Right? Raheem Sterling plays for Manchester City now because A.D. Ward was, got closer to Sterling than Brendan Rodgers could. You know, Sterling, who is Sterling going to believe? They're, they're telling him different things. He believes A.D. Ward. He's the one that he trusts. So, uh, Rogers is saying, I'll oh, stay here, you know. So, uh, Jonathan Barnett is in with the Grealishes. Probably Jack Grealish's dad loves him. Uh, Jack Grealish himself probably loves him. I mean, of course, the, you, the players do trust the Rangers and think of them as being friends because you can't, that's, that's the only way it works. You can't say, well, here's a, you know incredibly exploitative man who views me as a good way to make money for himself. I mean, that's not conducive to trust. Right? The agent has to make you believe that, that he's your friend. Now, it shows the importance of the personal relationships. That's what this is really all about. Ultimately, you follow uh, the advice of what people you trust. It looks to me as though Jonathan Barnett was the hardest working man at getting to know Jack Grealish better. Mm. Um, you know, from the Irish point of view... When Martin O'Neill came in, uh, what I remember him saying at the time, and we're talking about two years ago nearly, was we're, we've we've got to try and find players. We've got to try and go out there and find players, you know, grindy real players, whatever. At the time, there was a pretty good player in his under-21, so he didn't seem to have much interest in. And it doesn't seem as though he worked particularly hard to develop that relationship at the time, um, which is a time before Jonathan Barnett was on the scene. Uh you know, and I'm kind of thinking, well, it's it's always hard to know in hindsight. This this may have happened in any case. I think it would have. I think once the, his career went as well as it did last season, once he had the impact he had towards the end of last season, unless we had him tied down before then. Which could have happened. It could have happened. I'd be amazed if they were... It, it really seems his heart was set in playing for England. Well, no, no. So, I, so I, would, I would think that would have... It, that would only have happened. He only would have declared for Ireland a year, 18 months ago, if he had been incredibly impatient with the situation with England. But do you remember what Jack Grealish said to Tim Sherwood when Sherwood finally told him, Jack, I'm going to stick you in the team? About time. About time. Was it something like that? Says Grealish. Yeah. Sherwood's like, oh, that's not the response I was really expecting. I was expecting him to burst into tears and, and thank me and, you know, uh, uh, hail me as his, his father figure or whatever. But no, Grealish just said, yeah, about time. Should have been this team ages ago. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Martin O'Neill's attitude when he was asked about it was kind of like, well, you're talking about a guy who hasn't really done anything. I remember Roy Keane saying it as well. He hasn't scored a goal. He hasn't even got an assist. You know what I mean? <laughs> pointing, pointing out these facts. But Paul Lambert was leaving him out of the Villa team. He obviously thought Paul Lambert was wrong. Paul Lambert shouldn't be leaving me out of this team. Is Paul Lambert then necessarily, his, is his decision to not play Grealish, to, so that's the reason he hasn't made a breakthrough at Villa yet, is his decision necessarily the best one to cite when you're saying, well, you aren't really picking him up? I mean, you're just saying, oh, oh, they seem to be saying Lambert is right about me. I know Lambert's wrong about me, and how do I feel about what they're saying? You know, it's, it's a complicated one, but it's always going to be one of those issues I'm, where you wonder quick if... Quick one on this, Murph. And I'm just glad it's over. <laughs> And that's, that's all I have to say about it. I'm glad it's over. But it's not over. He's only at the beginning of his career. <laughs> no, but, well, what do you think is going to happen? He's going to start playing for England and then we're going to start belly aching all over again? Yeah. Oh, we're not, are we? Well, we will if he, if he goes plays well. well. The, better, the better he does, the more painful this gets. And that could go on for another 15 years. Or oh, haven't even mentioned the Rugby World Cup weekend yet, uh, featuring that staggering, staggering match between Wales and England. I still can't get over it. Actually, I still can't. It, it was different to a lot of other great rugby games, which are these matches where two teams go hammer and tongs at it. There are patches where one is going well and the other comes back, and there's heroism on both sides, all that kind of thing. There was there, there was all the uh, the injured bodies, and there was a lot of that. But really, it was weird. It was just Wales somehow managed to withstand all the injuries, then scored when they scored, and England had nothing. I really, I really think it was a massive bottle job from England, and not just that decision to go for the penalty. But the entire last 20, 25 minutes, they, they largely disappeared, really. I think a lot of players abdicated responsibility. But we'll get to all that a little bit later on. It's time to do this right now. I'm delighted to be joined in studio to talk about his new book by Henry Shefflin. Henry, how are you? Morning, Owen. Uh, good morning to you. Really good book. So well done on that, first of all. Uh, the good news for your teammates is that the book does have an index, so they can go straight to the back and <laughs> yeah. have a look. If you have, so you have to read the pertinent points, <laughs> yeah, you know, they yeah, can yeah. skip over all of the dots. Have you had any reaction from the lads? Yeah, the lads are looking for free copies. Michael <laughs> Fenley said he will not buy the book, so um, he's obviously will be going to the index to see what we're referring to. But uh, no, it's been, it's been, I don't think they've gone through it. They wouldn't be as quick at reading as, as you on some of the lads I'm definitely dealing with. So uh, it could take them a while to get to the parts where they're mentioned. You say in at the in the acknowledgments that writing this book was a project I pursued with some deliberation. I was interested in that line. What what were you deliberating about before bringing it out? Yeah, I suppose as you well know, I suppose Kenny hurlers have been very much you know probably seen in the field more than we've seen off the field or spoken about off the field in, in books etc. So it was something that um, I was probably you know I was one of those players myself, and I was very much of that culture. So I knew I if I was going to take on this project. Um, I wanted to be fair to them, but I wanted to be fair to myself and to be honest and and for the book to be about myself. And um, I, I wasn't going to do it if it was going to be some kind of bland effort or, you know, regurgitation of same matches, mm-hmm. etc. So I wanted it to be that bit more interesting. So hence, that's what I did deliberate over for a while. But um, I'm very happy with the outcome of it. Um, and, and a lot of that deliberation was about who I would ghostwrite with as well. Uh, who I would link up with the publishers. So I did put a bit of research into that and, uh, you know, Penguin and Vincent Hogan have been very good to me as well. Yeah, and I suppose the interesting thing, you know, looking at it callously is that, well, these were your, they're not your teammates anymore. You know, like if you were to look at it, you know, from a broader sporting kind of context, 
you know, you're, you're, you're a former Kilkenny hurler now. And the idea would be that, well, you know, I, I don't owe the man thing anymore. But obviously, that's not, that's not how it works. You yeah. know? Not, not, certainly not how it works <laughs> for you and not how it works for Kilkenny hurlers either, you know? Yeah, but as well as that, Kieran, like, basically, you know, I signed this contract in 2011. So, you know, it's been a long time ago. I, I remember actually distinctly uh, doing the contract for the book. It was actually, uh, I was up in Santry. I was going in to meet Dara Hines to get my shoulder reconstruction done. Um, for that year and I remember it was a dark lonely night up there in the, uh, but signing the book and at that stage I was so much in the bubble and you know and I was in the bubble during as well and during the project so uh, but when you step out of the bubble you kind of realise see things a little bit different uh, and there's even things in the book now that I probably go yeah maybe you know like obviously one of the things is, is my relationship with Brian in the last year um, and now when I've stepped back from it you know, six months, eight months down the line, I'm going to go to myself, well, maybe Brian was correct. You know, maybe I wasn't the player I was a couple of years before. And, you know, I've had serious injuries. I was 36 years of age. So, you know, when, when you're in that bubble, you're very much in that bubble. When you step outside it, you know, you do reflect a bit more on it, you know. I think you're very fair to Cody, though, overall. There, there did seem to be a change in the relationship in that last year. Which is maybe only natural when you're when you start yeah. feeding yourself. It's maybe it's more about you than it was about him that you start feeding like you're a little bit out of it. Exactly, you know. And I I, I spoke about it like that. My relationship would have been very very strong with Brian. Um, and the last year the relationship had shifted because and it, it's only natural. I could have easily said, yeah, I didn't mind. It was great. It was part of the panel. I love to be playing, and I do all of those things. But on a personal level. Of course, I wanted to be playing. Of course, I wanted to be speaking to Brian every week to see where I'm at, etc. But Brian has his job to do, and I suppose I have my job, and I have to be selfish about it. But I think, you know, what I do say is very fair, and I think any natural person that's been involved in a team environment that's gone through that will definitely go. <laughs> I know the feeling. Everyone's been through it at some I was, stage. I was talking career, to one yeah. of my friends who I spoke about in the book, Ever and Everard, uh, gas man from college and he was actually playing a junior uh, semi-final quarter-final the weekend and he was a sub and he wasn't brought on and he was feeling the exact same way as I was so. and he drank two or three pints on the Thursday night before so yeah. we're all the same I think I don't think anyone is going to claim to be any of the players are going to claim to be best mates with Brian Cody but the relationship you have you said you were close there and you seem to have some really warm conversations over the years I was quite struck by the, the, the scene where you're in hospital together when you're getting your foot done for example yeah, that was a bit of a surreal moment, to be honest. You know, we, we had some very, very uh, warm conversations. We had some probably not so warm <laughs> conversations over that period of time. But um, that was just a, a very uh, peculiar case in point. You know, obviously, Brian was in for his heart surgery at the time. I was going through my foot injury. I was going back from, I think it was my second or third operation on my foot. And I just happened to be going to the same ho- hospital where Brian was. So uh, I spoke to Elsie's wife and they kindly said, geez, yeah, make sure to call up and see Brian. So... Um, you know, it was a it was a lovely moment, and you know, all the moments we cherished on the field and celebrating our learnings, etc. That's something that would stand out for me as well. It was just like two two men, two very much into hurling, very much into Kilkenny, uh, discussing things, and uh, you know, obviously two probably not very able people at that point in case, but we were still very much. It was all about Kilkenny, and I think uh, you know those moments are something that you know 
everyone in every sporting environment has, you know, it's the off the field moments probably add to what's going on the on the field as well. Even after you were winning all Ireland's, you know, we would get to the Monday, the Tuesday, and you'd find time to slip away from the players and yeah. ha- just have a have a hook up with Brian for a pint or two. Yeah, you see, the boys are probably saying now the the lads with me are saying that Henry's always gone home early. He's looking after himself, <laughs> but now they know I was still going burning the midnight aisle. So. Um, but no, that was, you know, and, you know, to be fair to Brian, he very much does celebrate it. I know the lads this year c- celebrated it very much. And uh, a lot of people think uh, the cup is thrown in the bus and that's the end of it. But uh, no, we, we know how the party as well. And, uh, you know, those and it, it's more it's more a reflection of the year, I think, you know, satisfaction, relief. But then as well, you're able to go down and uh, obviously you're after having a few drinks. So you can really be very <laughs> truthful in what you say. And uh, obviously he can be truthful back as well, you know. The conversations that aren't so warm that you mentioned, the ones you've had with Cody over the years at training sessions or various team meetings. Am I right in saying that he, he played you like a fiddle at times? I mean, he'd, be, he'd drop in a comment. You'd be thinking, Jesus. I believe you said yeah, that. 100% aimed at me, but even though it may yeah, or may not have But been. There's, no yeah. conf- there's no confrontation. You just go away thinking, I'm going to prove him wrong, which is exactly the, the thing he's going for in the first place. Yeah, and I, I, again, you know, I, I've read some autobiographies of different, you know, I wrote Donald O'Callan's talking about Declan Kidney, very, very similar. So, um, And that's basically the genius of him. You know, he, his job, and again, since I've stepped away from it, is to basically get the best out of me, get the best out of Richie Hogan, TJ Reid, and if he does that job, there's a good chance he'd be successful. So how he does it, you know, he needs to know our characteristic, what makes us tick. So I'm sure he can make comments, you know, that he made down through the years, talking about players of the year, when there was myself and JJ Delaney, the only two player of the years in it. So <laughs> it's very simple to do the match then. It's one or the others. And probably JJ was hurling a bit better than me that year or whatever. So, um, but that's, you know, he speaks about that, the players of the years, the odds, they're not going great this year. And it just kind of, gives you that bit between your teeth to say I'll show him and and obviously you're not going to go up and confront him about it so there's only one way to do it is to show him on the field and that's exactly what he wants to do you know Brian O'Driscoll said something in his book which I thought was interesting he said the problem with being in the public eye is that the public believe they know you they judge your behaviour through the lens of their own preconceptions did you find that at Sorry, times? Sorry, that to me again. So the problem, yeah, the problem with being the public eye is the public believe that they know you. They judge your behaviour through the lens of their own preconceptions. So they're, they're expecting a certain thing from you. They, they think they know how you think, when actually it can be the, the, the very opposite, really, that almost O'Driscoll got to a point where he was trying to be somebody a little bit different and trying to project a slightly different image to how he actually was. Could you yeah, empathise with that? Definitely so, you know, and I, I speak about that in the book again. You know, I got to a phase in my career where, you know, when you're young, you come on first, you know, DJ Carey was there, Charlie Carter was there, and you're just so young, you just go with the flow. Um, but then, obviously, DJ had left, the media attention probably switched on to myself uh, that bit more, and as well as that, then I'd started to get the injuries. So, obviously, around that time of, you know, it was hurler of the year, you're getting the injuries, there's more media attention, there's more pressure on yourself. And the title had started to become just this title of King Henry. Uh, you didn't which, even want to no, say it. No, 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 I didn't want to say it. And uh, obviously that does put pressure on yourself. And, you know, I was 27, 28, 29. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, this is my life now. And this is everything that's, you know, I have to get the most out of myself these last couple of years. And I think you do get that perception of I was definitely more concerned about what people thought of me, how I handled myself off the field, dealing with children. And you should do that naturally, which I do now. But at that stage, I was kind of very, very concerned about what you were doing. And you're nearly looking over your shoulder, which puts pressure on you off the field and obviously puts a lot of pressure on you under, uh, 
on the field. So in that sense, I can really empathise with that. And, and it, it does, I think it's just a part of life cycle. You go through different phases and definitely, you know, I, I did struggle with that for a period of time. What, got, what or who got you out of that? Yeah, well, as I said, the injuries just kept coming. And I wouldn't say I was always like that, but there definitely was. Like, I can remember back to 2009, um, I basically was man of the match in the semi-final or early semi-final, scored 113-114, was absolutely flying it. But straight away, I was putting pressure on myself. I'd have to do it in the final. It happened to be we played Tipperary that year. We had never played him in our Ireland final over my period of time. We'd gone back to the 70s or something since the last final, and there was major hype surrounding it. And I swear to God, like, you should have seen me the Thursday and Friday before that game, you know. Just the nerves were just... I never experienced that and like it before. And that was just all that pressure I was putting on myself. Um, now, the public was there. There was pressure. But, like, that's always there, I think, you know. You have to perform, especially when you're playing with Kenny Hurling. So, but it was me that was putting that mm. pressure on myself. Um, so that was kind of what was in the background, right? And, and this continued for a couple of years, on and off. Um, but then what kind of changed my mind was that I was struggling severely with my shoulder that injury I mentioned of 2012 couldn't get it right one or two of the lads I'd been using um, brother Damien Brennan who I, I speak about uh, very fondly in the book um, for you know I suppose I knew they were, they were meeting him but I thought it was more from an injury point of view and he was brilliant for the injury point of view for my shoulder for strengthening it up and, and loosening it out but it more so transpired that it was more so in the psychological sense um, that he helped my game a lot more. And that's who, who is this guy? Who who is this? Well, brother Damien Brennan. Brother Damien, he, he's he's a brother. Obviously, he's from Leash. Um, he's Edmund Edmund Ignatius Rice. He's in that that sector, and uh, he's an amazing man. Basically, he he ended up in Callan County Kilkenny. Uh, he coached Callan to win a Leinster. College's final Ryan A, which is just you know two hundred students against Kieran's and CBS with seven hundred eight hundred students. Um, he was minor manager for three or four years. Won two All Irelands with Cha Fitz, John Tennis, and Richie Power, two thousand two, two thousand three, and just an amazing man. And and you know he'd he'd studied. Um, he'd obviously been involved in management and teams, and he'd done his courses on sports physio, etc. But um, you know he did degrees on psych- psychology as well. So in that sense, when I went to meet him, it was more, I was going to meet him just to talk about my shoulder and improving my shoulder, um, which he, he did do, but he also uncluttered my mind. So you just chat to him, I'd go meet him for maybe an hour, two hours, where he'd do some work on me, uh, stretching-wise and physio-wise, but then as well, we'd be speaking during that course of the thing. And, you know, a big thing for him was that you be yourself, and mm. that's what I hope comes across a lot more on me now and a big thing for him would be that look what people want to do or whatever is going on outside is left between the four walls it'd be just me and you and we just sit down and chat for for those hour an hour and a half and I'd come out very much refreshed and I just was just a lot easier as a person myself you know yeah and so he he in effect acted as a sports psychologist without you know, being yeah. called a sports psychologist. Exactly. Um, us hurlers don't like to talk. We say we need sports psychologists, but exactly that—that that is that it, Kieran. Yeah, because yeah. like that—that that was kind of what struck me reading that p- passage of the book. Actually, was that if he, if he was called a sports psychologist, maybe your reaction to him mm. would have been different. You know, mm. the, the the idea is that right. Okay, maybe the sports psychologist as a title 
is something that maybe you know it, it just you have an idea of what you're getting mm. if you walk into a guy with sports psychologist written on the front door whereas if you go into a guy like brother Damien then maybe it's a different thing maybe it's just like whatever I get from this guy is fine I don't need to label it one thing or another and that's maybe why it really worked for you yeah and you know it was a friendship uh, yeah. there was a trust there was honesty I wasn't paying 100 euros walking out the door or going in the door either you know and uh, and like it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he had to do it either. So I would agree totally with you. And it, it was basically a friendship we built up over time. And like when I went to him first, I, I, one of the things that I said to him was that, tell no one about this now, you know. So like I was like, you know, I was very much like, you know, I'm this strong Walking persona. In with the, yeah, yeah. With the fake nose and the yeah. mustache and everything. Yeah, yeah, some of your costumes from the yeah. show. So. <laughs> um, but and, and that. To be honest, that was something that I, and sports psychology, I wouldn't, oh my God, you have to be mad. But I think I learned a lot from that, which I'll carry forward in the rest of my life, is that, you know, if you have problems, or if you've struggled, so mine were only in a sporting context, but like, I suppose I wasn't in the best of form at home or anything like that. Now, Deirdre would say, my wife at home would say that she didn't see that, but I just felt myself, I, this pressure was building up and this pressure was coming down my shoulders. And I must say, just uncluttered myself. And it was just, it was that friendship, that honesty, and just being able to be myself and talk about things that were maybe going on in my head. And, and he had a very logical way, a very simple way of dealing with stuff. And, um, you know, it was just an amazing period of my time. I still touch base and I still talk to him now. And, um, you know, a lot of the characteristics, which he, over a period of time, he helped me with, um, was brilliant, you know. You ended up, Henry, that was 2012 when you first started doing that? Yeah, yeah. which was a decent year. Yeah, It it ended pretty well (laughs) with one of the... Sometimes you read sports autobiographies or you hear sports people talk and what you think was maybe their greatest performance or one of them, they sometimes disagree with. They say, no, actually, I I, I played better other days. But that uh, second half against Galway in the drawn game, uh, it's almost like an out-of-body experience is how you describe it. Yeah, it was uh, just, you know, and I probably have played better games is in a hurling pure hurling sense where you go out and you say like I speak of that 0-9 final where I just felt like I was just floating around the place no one could lay a hand on me you know and I scored 1-6 1-7 from play and everything my touch was brilliant my just my movement my striking that 12 final it wasn't like that you know it was very tough it was physical it was confrontational um, but as well as that I just felt like in that second period where I was out on my own. Now, I will talk about Brian Hogan, who was probably going through a very similar trade centre-back for us that day. But for me, you know, it was just, I just felt so good. And, you know, when I was a boy growing up in Ballyhale, I dreamed of, you know, doing something amazing in an All-Ireland final or the FA Cup or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was my opportunity and that was the one occasion where I really felt this is it. So that's why that match is so special to myself I'm sure the Galway people are fed up with me talking about it to be honest <laughs> no, especially no, after no. this year <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, no. but the uh, the one thing I would say about that game as well is that the traits you talk about there that made that special to you that was kind of the the pressure that you would put on yourself say from 2009 onwards you know that mm. that period of time where it wasn't enough just that you were the top scorer, that you also felt this big pressure to be, you know, Henry Shefflin, to be the leader of the team, to be like the the figurehead of the entire team. And like that crazy pressure that you put on yourself was about more than just the silky hurling. And I suppose from that point of view, that that's why that performance might stand out more, maybe more than the other the other ones. 
Yeah, probably so. And and definitely, you know, the whole leadership thing definitely gets spoken about so much. And I think yeah. that kind of reinforced that point that day because I suppose that's, and, you know, I was very privileged to have Brian launch the book. Brian Cody launched the book last Thursday night. And he spoke about that moment, you know, and he, and, and he said, look, that was where, you know, he, he said when we needed it the most, you know, and that's, I think, the most gratifying thing about it was that we were under mm. pressure, so... Uh, and that's why it's been the standout performance for myself, you know. Well, just to maybe give the Galway listeners a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a nod here, there was uh, the famous 2001 All Ireland semi final. This has been mentioned uh, a number of times by you and by others as mm. sort of a, a touchstone, really, for a lot of what came afterwards because it was such a low point. But the words you use to describe your own performance that day, timidity. So essentially, for people who don't know, you're being wound up by their corner back, and rather than. Uh, having the, the mental strength that you would usually have to come through it, you start throwing a bit of a strop, really. So timidity, the rage of a prima donna. You say it was pathetic, a child tossing the toys out of the pram. I slipped into a monumental sulk. I thought I was a man, but obviously I wasn't. You don't exactly spare yourself when you've gone badly there. Yeah, no, and like even when you were saying those words, I kind of I shiver and I think back to that day because, um, you know, I did toss the, the toys out of the pram very much so and I... Gregory Kendi, who's become a friend of mine since, actually was the Galway cornerback, uh, was actually hoping to come down to the launch night uh, last Thursday night. If I was Gregory Kennedy, I would be telling this story all the time. <laughs> I'd be making like, it that launch anyway. I'd yeah. be like uh, stapling it onto the side of my jumper, like, you know. <laughs> but um, no, and like that, it, it was pathetic. And and you know, do I still give out to the the umpire and the the referee? Of course I do, but not to the same extent. And like it wasn't like as if I was getting physically bet up or anything like that it was just very simply pulling and, and tugging my jersey and just a little bit of digging or whatever and it was nothing major and um, you know I thought I probably the year previous we'd won our first star learning with Brian was 2000 things that went very well for myself become an all-star and you probably think oh yeah 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 I, I've met it now I know how it how it goes you know so and that was the one time where it was really thrown up to us and I didn't respond very well. It's the impact it had on you, though. It seems like that these low moments, you almost take defeat personally at times, whether it's with uh, Bally Hale before you guys really hit the big time mm. or with Kilkenny around that period. You seem to take a lot on yourself when things go wrong. Is, am I reading that right? Yeah, I, I would agree with you, yeah. And I think that's just, you know, the characteristic of it. That, that comes from my, my upbringing, my parents' upbringing, Bally Hale, my brothers and sisters. I think very much in any sports person, the character they are kind of comes through in the sporting field as well. So obviously, you know, and as well as that, you know, I speak about in the book is that when I was 14, 16, I wasn't the top player, you know, and I know, know well that you have to work very hard to try and achieve. And that, that for me was a big thing. And then when something like that happens, where you feel it's all working smoothly, next thing then that happens, there's talk about you, you're not winning an all-star, you know, Brian Cody is challenging it very much. You know, a couple of months later when we went back pre-season training, you kind of go to yourself, is this all going to be taken from me? And I think, you know, and, and in within the Kilkenny dress room, you know, and you might find this amazing to, to hear, but we speak more about the losses than we do the victories. Right. And it's those days that really drive you on. And that, I think that's what motivates the players. Now, the juiciest part of the book, probably... Juicy. Oh, I like the sound of this. <laughs> involves your attitude or your, your explanation of the rivalry with Cork. Oh, yes. Uh, the sense I got from this, Henry, is that Cork have kind of had their say here. Yeah. Specifically, Donald Logue has had a say in yeah. this book. And maybe it's a, it's a subject you could have avoided or skirted around, but maybe you felt it was time for somebody from Kilkenny to give yeah. their own version of events. I, I actually didn't think of it like that, but I think that's a fair comment. Um, like, first and foremost, I, I like all these Cork players. And I, I've, you know, I've 
met him all and obviously I'm working with Don Logue now and you know I've been away with him GPA trips with him and I have the height of respect for him I didn't I didn't respect his comment on Stephen White's I just thought it was just white in the mark I would agree with you you know Kilkenny being Kilkenny we just kept our head down we said nothing we just got on with it and I think it is only right that it's put out in the public domain that I felt it just wasn't right it wasn't right for those group of players um, and I just felt you know that's that's my point in it. That's my standard. That's my opinion. Like Donald had his yeah. opinion. You know what was wrong? What what was disrespectful about that? What was wide of the mark about calling you separate wives? Essentially implying that you guys followed orders and didn't have a mind of your own. Yeah, and I think very robotic, and you know, just didn't seem to have any characteristics, no character whatsoever. Um, and I just thought that was very unfair because anyone who came in contact with the Kenny players would say that is just not true. I would agree. The time of the the first strike. Um, you know, Brian was very much his principles. We are not going out. We're looking after ourselves. And that's a selfish thing. Yes, it is. I've no doubt about it that what Cork did probably helped other counties and so-called weaker counties get what they were entitled to. But it was really a Cork thing between themselves and the county board. And we were probably, we didn't know what was going on. Um, so how were we supposed to down tools and do something that we weren't quite sure who was right or who was wrong? And that's a matter of opinion, obviously. So, that for us, and I just think the step for voice thing was just—it was just a, a blow to belt, you know. I just wouldn't have agreed with the comments, um, and I just—I didn't like it. And I think it's only fair that you know we have the right to reply as well. Yeah, no, I think so. And you've come back with one or two zingers. You mentioned that they were apparently going to uh, Cork had these motivational tattoos in 2006, which I, I'd never heard anything about. Which, as you say, would have been seen as a masterstroke if they'd won. There's always yeah. this, these layers put onto victories. But as you say in the book, I suppose there's a pretty fine line between cleverness and bullshit. Yeah, like, and like that year, and you know, I, I don't know if you were working at that time, were you lads? Yeah, 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 around, yeah. yeah. You were probably talking about this great team. And we'd all heard it, that they were the most best trained team, the sharp Advanced passing game, team, yeah, and yeah. their drills were so sharp and everything like that. And we'd all heard that. And to be fair, we, Michael Dempsey and Noel Richardson were there that year, were our physical trainers. And like, for them, that's you know they, that's their love, the physical training. And Cork were being put up as much to say there's no one as fit as them in the hurling front and no one as good as them. Their drills and all their training matches are so sharp and everything like that. And we just felt like, you know, we'd won maybe three or four All-Irelands in the previous uh, couple of years. So it was like as if we were exinct uh, at that stage. So for me... And for those players, it was very much we wanted to kind of go out and show them, you know. Yeah, and I think it's a big thing in the GA as well. Like you saw with the Donegal footballers as well mm. that, like, that there are certain teams where everyone might be doing the same thing, but it's presented a certain way. Armagh as well, not used to annoy people in Kerry. Armagh to a huge yeah, extent. Like yeah. when Armagh and Throne first came on the scene of football, it was seen like, well, you know, we're dragging the sport, kicking and screaming into the twenty first century, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. And like, there is an element as well of. There are maybe managers and there are players that are better that are able to sell that idea. You know, mm. sell the idea that right here we go. This is well, we're, we won for three reasons, and it's you know like this crazy symbol on the back of the jersey that Armagh mm. had, and what's this all about? It all kind of creates a mystery, and it's a lot. Uh, it, maybe it's a lot more boring to hear a team as well. We train very hard and we yeah. practice very hard, and then we win. And like you know, that's just the way it is. That's the way the media landscape, I suppose. Uh, you know? uh, but what I would say as well, Kieran, I think some of that probably, and this is the thing, because when you're in that bubble, you're looking for something to really drive you on, and some of it was created by the players, but I think a lot of it was created by the people outside. Of, like there was the talk that time that Roy Keane went to meet the players, and they were going to win 
Um, I don't know how many are Ireland's, five are Ireland's. Bill O'Hurley was on the telly. I remember watching him one night, Corkman, um, you know, speaking about how many all Ireland's they were going to win. So it, it was probably outside. It was just the whole Cork team, yeah. the, the confidence they had was very much taken over. And we were sitting in Kilkenny thinking, well, look, just, we're not really good, but we'll just keep our head down and keep going. Um, and that's kind of how it transpired, you know. Yeah, you guys are done for, you know. If you never just, you know, no. you <laughs> got the Amos here, yeah. you know, you could have been selling this. <laughs> the longevity of your career, Henry, and the success that you continue to achieve, we all knew about the injuries, or we—I guess this is the first time we've seen it all presented in a way that's totally yeah. accurate, yeah. and it's also very comprehensive. And what emerges is a guy who really doesn't know when to ease well, off the the injuries, the injury. Um, as my wife, as my wife has read the book, said to me, she said, "You you come across them like a psycho." She said, <laughs> "What is going on?" Which she said, "I didn't know that was going on." She said, "Because, but it it just happened that, like the first one, the first cruise ship was fine." Um, but then the other ones were just three in a row, like it was just year after year. And that's, as I said, those are the flow of the chapters. So it kind of, you're kind of reading it going, course, yeah, oh my yeah. God, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, like, I think the best line of the entire book is, uh, uh, at home, I sensed I was starting to, to get on Deirdre's nerves. So, like, there's really like a whole, like, kind of three years of frustration for your wife there that I just, like, sank into one line, you know? But uh, this, this was, you were trying to, you were warming up. You're warming up your shoulder like a half hour in the morning and a half hour in the mm. evening, and just like this this poor woman is gonna she's oh. gonna think I'm just a complete <laughs> lunatic altogether, like you know. Yeah, it was just like and you know, and I speak to a lot of people with injuries. You know, I suppose I learned something from each and every one of them. Um, but even at the end, my foot, like I did my cruciate, then I did my shoulder, and then I did the the foot, like so. Um, the foot was probably the worst of them, and that. At that stage, I just kept pushing it, and I probably pushed it too far that last year. I got a couple of stress fractures, and, you know, as well as I was learning from all these injuries, I probably wasn't improving. I did probably push it too much because each year I just felt I needed to push it more, and and sometimes less is best, you know. How have you found the transition into retirement? You're obviously still going well at Bally Hale, and you had a good win at the weekend, yeah. so, so you're on course there, hopefully for another county final. But in terms of the structure and trying to fill in, I suppose the most visible thing we see you on is, is the Sunday game, yeah. uh, which you're doing very well at. How are you finding that side of it? Yeah, like obviously I was lucky enough in the sense that it, you know, it was last March when I retired, so at that stage the season was nearly upon us. you know. So um, I must say I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed the summer. Um, the biggest enjoyment I've had, I've been very busy, you know, there's been a lot going on, which I've been very fortunate to have. Um, but there's not that much pressure there on in the sense that, you know, and it wasn't even pressure. Like I had kind of sorted out this King Henry stuff and I was kind of very much myself and I was enjoying my hurling. But you are constantly kind of watching yourself, you know, Tuesday evening, I'm training Wednesday evening, I better eat right tonight and better have my work, work organised and I'm home. I don't have any of that now, so I can be busy in work. I can go home and just relax, you know, and, and take it easy and watch yourselves or whatever. And that, that, that little bit of pressure is not there. Um, and that's the most enjoyable part of it for me. Um, you know, and the Sunday game is, is brilliant as well as that. I, I'm very much involved in the game still, you know, and, and going to the matches, it's time consuming. Deirdre obviously, you know, has, has to put up with that again because it is, there is a lot of work involved in it. But you get a sense of going to the games and even going to the Munster Championship this year was different for myself and I really did enjoy it, you know. Well, I'm glad to hear you've been watching a little bit of our TV yeah, show. Yeah, Murph, yeah. The, I was the, delighted with Richie Hogan there. Yeah, I was going to ask, well, the question originally was, uh, do you know that you're number one to go back? Oh. We all know that <laughs> the, the Goodwill is a topic of hot debate yes. in the Sheffield household. But uh, I, I should let you know that 
Richie Hogan, obviously your old teammate, was first guest on the TV show. And uh, we always find out, you know, the move that he's going to make before yeah. he comes on. You know, I'm taking you behind the scenes here. But so I texted Richie on the Tuesday anyway, like the Tuesday after the All-Ireland. So you can imagine where he was. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I, I said, uh, right, Richie, who are, you, who are you going to bring in? And he said he was going to bring in. And he, he, he did say that he was going to take you off the wall entirely. Yeah. Um, but obviously, common sense prevailed. Or maybe your phone call was put in. No, yeah. no, 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 no. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't. He did text me after now, to be fair to him. So. Uh, it must be for all those passes I gave him down through the years. Yeah, I think that you was got a hurler of the year off you. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, listen, well done again in the book. It's called Henry Shefflin, The Autobiography. Really, really good read. And um, I'm glad you, it sounds like you enjoyed doing it as well. So Yeah, very much so. As I said, um, it was something that, you know, and when I... It was only when the book kind of arrived in front of me, I went, oh, my God, this is my book, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, And when I read through it, I must say the big thing and the feedback I've got so far is very honest. So I hope that's all I wanted to come across in the book, that it is very honest. Great. You know? Well, Henry, great to see you again. Thanks a million. Thanks a lot. So that's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Hawk have made a massive boo boo with our matchups. Massive boo boo. Tonight. 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 All right, absolutely brilliant to talk to Henry about about all of that, really. Um, I hope we didn't paint him as too much of a lunatic when he's coming back from injuries, Murph, but that's what he is at those. <laughs> he says well, we himself, didn't do it. He, his, book <laughs> yeah, his book does use the word lunatic, I think, at one stage. Like, there's one story where, oh, we shouldn't get to there, where he's rehabbing his cruciate after, uh, after one of the, I think it was after the cruciate that he had done against Tip, or before the, in the All-Ireland semi-final in 2010, before the final against Tip where he mm. tried to get it right and obviously it let him down and all that but anyway, he's re- rehabbing it after that snowed in into the house it was around one of the big freezes he said we just got a delivery of coal so I took myself out to the garage and improvised a weight session started doing squats with a 40 kilo bag of coal on my back and a tin of paint in each hand at some point Deirdre noticed I was missing from the house and came looking when she found me I could tell she was a little emotional I suppose I look pathetic covered in soot from head to toe. <laughs> what an image. There are a few of these. I think that strikes to the heart of what I was talking about at the start of the show. There are a few of these really nice images. And when it's a sportsman, the level of Henry Shefflin, mm. these insights are these insights are gold. You know, this is exactly what yeah, you're looking yeah, for from yeah, this painting. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's quite a scene, all right. Um, and the, the use of the word emotional there. <laughs> it's like, there are questions being asked there of just uh, what she's gotten herself in for there, maybe. I don't it, know. It was interesting. That sports psychology we talked about there, and I thought he spoke about it really well, that he he didn't, essentially you put the question to him, did you maybe look at this brother Damien Brennan character differently to how you would have looked at somebody who was branded a sports psychologist and maybe imposed on the squad? And he absolutely did. He took that question on board. It's also interesting that he went off his own bat there. You know, Cody didn't know about it as far as I know didn't know he was going to see this guy and even with the injuries Cody left him to you know he assumed he was doing all the right things and left him to it for a large part I just found that kind of interesting that at that level a lot of it is down to the player you're not actually that molly coddled at all I don't know necessarily why I thought you, you should be Ken but what do you think about the sports psychology element to it the one guy he could trust was somebody who was well had done some training in sports psychology but wasn't See a sports psychologist as such. Well, uh, it was interesting that the guy said to him, um, "How how would you rate your performance in the last match?" And he said five, five, five out of ten. ten. He goes, oh, "I'd say it was more than three. <laughs> um, 
but he evidently that's the kind of player he felt he was dealing with. I mean, I was I was struck by because um, said there's there's I was mentioning the Stephen Gerrard book. He talks a bit about his relationship with Steve Peters. Oh yeah, and his his initial meeting with him was quite different. Uh, where he's coming in going, oh, you know, I'm really down. I've got all these injuries. I've, I don't know if I'm going to play again. My head's wrecked. I feel like my head's about to explode. And Steve Peter says, so what? And he says, what? I don't understand. What are you talking about? And uh, Peter says, so what if you never kick a ball again? And Jared's like, but, but. And he says, you know, you've got a ton of money. You won the Champions League. You won the FA Cup. You scored all these goals. You played for England how many times? You've got three daughters, you know. Like, you know, your life actually isn't that bad at all. Try to look around a little bit. Mm. There are people who... What was his reaction? He was kind of like, oh, I never looked at it that way before. But you know what? He's actually kind of right. <laughs> My life isn't that bad. So I do have this rogue sack of puss, which is causing me a lot of discomfort. <laughs> this is going back to the football <laughs> podcast, if you need to know about the, On the, other the hand, puss here. But you know, Jared. So, so I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, it depends on the kind of person who comes in to you, the attitude that you take as a sports psychologist. Stephen Gerrard obviously needed to be built back up. Gerrard. Henry Shefflin. Well, I don't know if it was as good as a five, Henry. <laughs> I think, yeah. The Irish Times second captain's football podcast with a lot of puss is out now. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you oh, now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> so we talked a little bit about a couple of the recent book releases, of course. Uh, we talked about the uh, Spanish League, Owen, the, the broken uh, knee ligaments of Lionel Messi. And the cold heart of Rafael Benitez. And also about Brendan Rogers, who believes a large number of people are currently engaged in a frenzy to get him out of his job. Simon, if England do go down, we all had fun on Saturday night, I'm sure, but if England do go down against Australia, uh, what happens to the tournament? In terms of what? In terms of the rest of the tournament, host nations Excitement. gone. Well, if Ireland are still in it, it'll be fine. For us. We'll fill the stadiums. Is this not the general... Well, that is true. There is some of it. And Wales probably would as well. Yeah, any of the, any big match involving Ireland or Wales in where we end up back in London. Do we end up yeah. back in London if we get to a semi-final? I suppose it all depends on what yeah, happens. We do, yeah, yeah, we Port do. Yeah. is definitely in Cardiff, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen Warren Gatton. Warren Gatton showed more emotion immediately after that game than he has Any of the Grand Slams or any Cups or Lions. It was yeah. unbelievable. I, thi- I think because his team had to show more heart than ever before. Yeah. They probably played better. But my God, I mean, the chips have never been more down for Wales in a game, in a big game. Which actually shows you quite a lot, I think, about how Gatlin coaches compared to others. And sometimes people used to use it as a stick to beat him with, that he was about the emotional side of things. And they still do, the, the slabs of meat coming down for the Lions. But I don't know if any coach gets a team to an emotional pitch like he does with Wales. With all these players who do nothing at club level, um, or certainly the teams that do nothing at club level, all leave to France, they turn up under Gatlin and these, those injuries were insane. Serious injuries. Two scrum halves, arms. two out halves, a fourth choice centre. Yeah. Just the most cobbled together back line Completely. that we've seen in years from a top team. Yeah, no, and, really- uh, no, but the thing is they didn't actually start all that well. I mean, England were mainlining adrenaline and I didn't think England would actually keep playing that well just because mm. they were playing so much off the occasion in the crowd. But I still thought at 10 points up, at home, playing well, Wales just 
didn't look like they had too many ideas. No. Like England should have gone on to win that by 20 points, never mind draw it or lose it. Yeah, Jerry Thornley and Shane Horgan are ready to talk to us. Lads, we'll get to England in a second, but uh, just to follow on from Ireland and Romania, the big news, I suppose, Jerry, is that Rob Kearney is set for a scan and a glute strain. So we'll wait and see what happens. But uh, how big a potential loss is Kearney at this stage? Well, perhaps not as big a loss as it would have been in most junctures in the last four years or so because there hasn't always been an awful lot of options to Rob. But I think Simon Zebo's form has been very encouraging. He's really embraced the full-back role and... You saw about that astonishing 25-yard right-to-left pass uh, for the Keith Earls' first try, that he brings an, another dimension to Ireland's attacking game. Of course, he didn't feel one high ball that would be meat and drink to Rob Carney, and Rob Carney is probably a better defender. And I'm sure if all bets were equal, Rob Carney would still start ahead of Simon Zebo. But if there's any doubt about Rob Carney, they'd be comfortable enough throwing Simon Zebo in there. Yeah, Shane, we've talked to you a lot about Zebo in the, in the last couple of years. Uh, I know uh, maybe a couple of years ago, you certainly were one of the people who doubted him. I don't know what you're feeling about him now. I mean, this that pass to Earls was sensational. The little chip ahead to himself for the try that was ultimately disallowed for a foot being in touch. I know Schmidt is all about the basics, but these things can't but impress Joe Schmidt, Shorty. Yeah, they do impress Joe Schmidt. I think they impress everyone. His skill set is, is quite remarkable. He's, uh, as you said, he's capable of producing that uh, phenomenal pass. He tries something almost every time. Um, and I think my issue was um, uh, with him was um, maybe the similar to what Joe Smith has, was that he's trying, he wasn't quite getting his basics down pat. And to be honest with you, he's very close to being in a situation where he's a very complete uh, full-back. He's got, he, he has a phenomenal left foot. Um, his passing range is excellent. Um, given that Rob Carney does have a knock, um, and, and given that we're playing against an Italian side that have looked very short of form, and also given the fact that uh, the level that he's playing at, I don't think it would be an issue at all for him to step in and play this week, or even if, if Rob's injury was more serious, I think there'd be a lot of confidence in, in starting with 15 going forward into the tournament. What about second centre then, Shane, which suddenly maybe is an issue with form? Jared Payne, he's, he's an incredibly low profile for a guy who has taken over from Brian O'Driscoll, has the Six Nations medal under his belt, um, and who is now in this new position. He's played fullback most of his life. Initially, I think when O'Driscoll was replaced, maybe the issue was defence. You know, get that sorted, get the first thing sorted, and then we'll worry about all the frills and our attacking game. But now, I, I think his attacking game has come under a little more focus. And there's issues there, particularly with his kicking game and with some of his option taking. Yeah, listen, I think he's been solid enough. I think he's been pretty solid since he came into the side. I think he's probably what Ireland needed. Now, I think Joe Schmidt would have liked to have played Luke Fitzgerald uh, with um, Henshaw in that position a number of times in the last two years or since uh, Brian finished. He hasn't been able to do that for mainly because Luke has been injured. Ultimately, if you're going to try and win a World Cup, if you're going to do something extremely special, I think you probably have to take risks. And if that's the case, then you're going to try and get um, Luke Fitzgerald in at 13 and you're going to try and get Earls in the form that he's in at the moment onto the wing. Again, I think he can do this against Italy. They're not playing well. Yes, Parise is back. I've no doubt Ireland are going to win the game. I think we can take a chance of, uh, and I don't think it's a big chance, I think we can see how they perform against Italy in the midfield and have Earls and um, Dave Kearney on the wing. And I think you've got an extremely exciting and pacey backline. 
uh, one of the fastest we've ever had. Yeah, just the issue, uh, Jerry, with regards to Jared Payne, I think that Simon's talking about there, lar- largely as far as I can see, it's his kicking. And it's decision. It's his decision to actually kick the ball when there's absolutely no need to. I mean, if fair enough, Shane says he's solid, but if you're going to be the solid player there, it means you're... You really have very little latitude to make mistakes if that's all you're really bringing to the game. Uh, a lot of players do this, a penalty is given and they decide, ah, oh, sure, I might as well kick it so because they're going to get a penalty either, rather than actually, especially against a team like Romania, uh, keep the ball in hand and actually work them a little bit. It seems a little bit strange. Uh, there, were, there was one kick out in the full the other day. There was one that he just kicked against a defender that was in the back of some bad kicking. And this is all coming from a full back. Would you see him as being, uh, his place as being under threat at this stage? Um... A lot of people in the know, a lot of people in the squad, a lot of people who retired from the game recently all think he's doing a really good job. He's, it's a bit like Madigan at 10 or Jackson at 10. He's down by comparison because of the fellow who was there before and we all know how good he was. Jared Payne doesn't have that X factor coming before, but I don't believe there really is another 13 around who does. I'd be very surprised if Jared Payne doesn't start against France and it's still the Irish number 13 going forward. Shane, the England-Wales uh, England game, which is absolutely remarkable. I don't know if you've, if you've seen uh, finishes like that from a team with so many injuries, uh, a lot of them to the back line that Wales had there. Ha- have the English media generally been unsparing on their team? No, uh, they, haven't, they haven't spared the, the knife, uh, not just on the team, but uh, a lot of flack being directed towards uh, the management, I think. Quite rightly so, but you know, Rumshaw certainly has got a, a history of making poor decisions. Um, as a captain, uh, that's going back to the game against South Africa a couple of years ago. Um, but I think it's not just um, Rumshaw. I think there's a couple of things. Was Farrell unequivocal about him being able to, you know, wanting to take the kick? Uh, and if he wasn't, was Ford unequivocal about taking the kick? That will influence the captain's decision. But also more than that, Lancaster knows that there was an issue with Rob, Rumshaw's decision making going back a very long time, there should have been a system in place to make sure that he got word onto the pitch. And I think that he blinked at a crucial minute as well. There was four minutes to go, um, when at least four minutes to go, when Bigger kicked over uh, his penalty. Now, that was enough time to get a message on to Rob Shaw to make sure that they said if there was any penalty in the, inside the half, that they'd take the three points. Uh, this is the position the game was in. If you're a proper, if you have a management system, you have the proper system in place. You there's water, um, water um, carriers, there's medics, there's figures all around that ground. It is not, it's impo- it's not impossible for them to to get in before the decision was made, and it should have been done. So for me, it's on Lancaster's head. Okay. And by the way, he's yeah. also left. He's hung out in the media, not you know, not completely, but practically, he's hung out his captain in the media for making that decision. Now, let's see what impact that has in the next week's training and on next Saturday night. How do you mean hung him out, Shane? Well, what you have to do in that situation, uh, if, you, if you're a Lancaster, you have to go, yeah, that's the decision. Uh, he's, you know, he, he didn't back it straight away afterwards in the, um, in the flash interview after the game. He didn't 100% back his captain, and he hasn't done it subsequently. Um, when he's had a chance to sort of reflect um, and realise that this is a time for unity. Whether he thinks it was the worst decision ever made or not, you can't let that crack in between captain and um, and coach in the middle of a tournament. I think we've put, we've seen the, the kickers also. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain about this, but I, I think also uh, Farrell suggested that he wanted to take the kick. So when you've got this sort of disunity going into one of the most difficult and high-pressure games that England will ever play, um, it can't be good. Shane, you've referenced the team selection there, which you don't seem to agree with, even though it seems like they went pretty well. I mean, Burgess seemed to go okay for 60 minutes and Owen Farrell was certainly kicking well, but uh, you weren't blown away by that selection in the first place? 
Um, Farrell kicked well, certainly, and he did a decent all-round game. But there was a huge amount of disruption um, to that the midfield, and he hasn't been settled uh, for a long period of time. I think Ford should have been given the opportunity to continue on as he was. I think they were also lucky that Wales weren't challenging um, England in the way that they could have been. And we saw the uh, one time that they did offset phase, there was a huge bite in by... Um, by Burgess and um, Wales really sh- should have scored a try. And I think you've got to look at the position of uh, Andy Farrell in this. And, you know, the general consensus is that, oh, you couldn't possibly um, be thinking about, you know, your son and, and putting him before um, the team. And I'm not saying that it's uh, direct nepotism, but it's definitely a contract uh, conflict of interest. And it's very difficult for him to see beyond the fact that he thinks his son is is the best number 10. And, you know, I've been exposed to, you know, rugby fathers um, throughout my whole rugby life and, and had a rugby dad myself. And I can tell you, they always think their sons are good enough to get in the side. And that is a, you know, that is a conflict and that is a, a, a compromise that, that England um, have to make. And if you look at Farrell, you know, he's a huge personality. And I think, you know, the the, um, the feedback coming is that he is, uh, you know, Lancaster's man, uh, more so than Cash. Uh, he's been listened to, to for selection and, and also for, um, you know, strategy. And, you know, Andy Farrell was a brilliant rugby league player. He wasn't a good rugby union player, and his he went straight into coaching without a background in union. And, and if you look at his coaching um, credentials before he went to the England squad, it was with Saracens, and, and you know they weren't a, a backline that ever really um, got things flowing. So. You know, I think there's a lot of stead and there's a lot of pressure ramping up now on Farrell and Lancaster and I think some of it's of their own making. That's interesting, Shane, because it's almost two separate issues there. I suppose they're connected, but one is that it seems like you feel that maybe Farrell is overrated as a coach uh, and the other one is the issue of his son being in and around the team. As regards the, the... if Lancaster is convinced that he is a great coach and wants to keep him there, it seems difficult to work out what you can do about that second problem because Owen Farrell is clearly good enough to be either the first or second choice uh, uh, out half there. So is there any solution to that? I mean, I presume it's gone past the point of there being any solution because this is their World Cup squad now. Because um, his, you know, his selection of Burgess, for example, I think... Is, is not, or his, you know, and, and by the way, to some degree I'm guessing because Lancaster has the ultimate say in these things, but um, from what I'm hearing, you know, Farrell is promoting um, Burgess. So it's, it, he's, I think he's viewing that through the spectrum of a rugby league player almost and, you know, what Burgess could potentially bring without seeing, you know, the flaws that are clearly in his game and the fact that he's, he's too early to be exposed to this level of competition. And I, I say it again that, you know, Wales weren't firing all cylinders. They weren't the Wales that we've seen um, as Six Nations champions. Um, they had a lot of injuries. They weren't competing so uh, well and they weren't moving the ball particularly well. Um, so I, I think at set piece time, I think in Australia, who run form would you know cut open um, that um, that particular you know defensive uh, midfield. Um, so I think that aside, though, you know the selection of his son. I think that you know it's very difficult for him to be in a position where he's involved in selection in the ten decision, um, if indeed he is, because. Um, I think it's almost impossible not to um, want to, you know, to have an. You know, it's not a, 
it's not necessarily even a critique of him because I think it's just inbuilt um, in a father that it's um, it's very difficult to to see somebody else as better. All right, Shane, Jerry, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, thank you. Thanks a million. Uh, really interesting stuff from Shane there on Andy Farrell. Murphy, you're the only one, well, I'm not sure if you are the only one, but you have been coached by your father before. Mm-hmm. Would you agree that he would have been in a difficult situation there were he to have to choose between you and another talented young go-getter? Uh, well, it was kind of weird because like we, when the, the teams that, I'm, that you're talking about there are you know, Milltown underage teams and like getting 15 players out onto the field. <laughs> and I, he, he never had to make the decision between like, you know, the... the the twelfth best player and me being the thirteenth best player, or something like that, or the fourteenth and fifteenth. Like I was, I was always ma- going to make the team anyway. So it was really just a case of. Um, oh, sorry, Ken, smiling here. I love when this happens. You weren't in the Darren Ferguson zone. No, 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 no. I was in the well. What, what, what analogy can we draw here? I don't know. Paolo Maldini. Paolo yeah, Maldini. Yeah, Paolo Maldini's not. That's about dropped. right. Yeah, that's yeah, about right. Exactly yeah. Right. <laughs> so Ali's sentence that links me with Paolo Maldini, I'll definitely take. But he saw past your budgie heart. He well, it, there basically it was it wasn't so much that my budgie heart was held against me. It was more the gammy legs and other limbs of the of the uh, possible people that he would be dropping in my in favor of me. <sighs> Murph That'd slams be, many of his. Do you want me to name them? No. I'll name them. We don't need them named. Okay. The, uh, the, I don't, well, I'll name them. Don't I, I, about I, that. I don't know if we have the lawyers listen to this one, Murph. It's, it's, it could get messy. Okay. Lancaster. Okay, so what we're talking about here is forget about the. That, that for a second the decision to go for the penalty Lancaster and the aftermath Lancaster decides to land Robshaw in it immediately Robshaw lands Owen Farrell well both kickers and, and or George Ford, Ford well I talked to the kickers yeah and we decided to go for the win how do you ask both of them first of all yeah. uh, surely one of them knows they're the first choice yeah um, then how do they both say no and especially Owen Farrell afterwards has said I would have fancied the Owen kick. Farrell said he wanted to it was kick 100% it. for the day on Lancaster didn't back Robshaw then. He said, well, we have to have a look at that decision-making. And as Shane says, Lancaster could have got the message down there. There should have been enough time for him to get a message down there. But some of the England camp, I think, may have been better off following the example of their fullback, Mike Brown, who wasn't giving away too much to the media post-match. What do you think the difference between the two sides then? They won and we lost. Is discipline a problem? There seems to be a lot of turnovers, a lot of penalties. Do that yeah, feel like that? Yeah, it's a definitely a problem because there's a game. Is it a regret that you didn't go for the post in the left no. end? It's a regret we lost. Do you think you can turn this around now? You've got Australia up next. Do you think you can put one over them? I hope so. Otherwise, we're out of the World Cup. Top day. Yeah, top day, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I like that the journalists just give up. That often happens in those situations. Anything else? Tough day. Yeah, tough day. That's actually how your second captain's first captain's whatever quote came to be. Something like that. You just that. sort of gave up on any proper questions, so you just yeah. gave the most cliched when you could. Yeah. Oh, um, what do you think about Mike Brown? What do we all think about Mike I think uh, he's thinking, I just played 10 out of 10 and my captain somehow screwed this who, up. Who made that decision? It was a captain. Well, Rob Shaw. Rob Shaw did. He did. He, he, in his head, he wanted to go for the win. There was well, probably he, talk before the game about going for a win. And even though Owen Farrell's eyes were saying, let me take the kick, he probably just thought, I need to prove I'm a brave captain here. And this is Wales, after all. This is our World Cup. We're at home. 
let's win this thing, a draw. A draw, a draw. A draw somewhere in his head it, wasn't acceptable, even though it completely was. It was totally acceptable. Yeah. I mean, it was so... As Jerry said, it was very different to a, a Six Nations where the Grand Slam is seen as the big thing. Hmm. The prize here is to get out of your group. Yeah. And a draw would have, assuming the result goes well against Australia, a draw would have seen both Wales and England clear. But you compare it to the result, the, the similar situation when Japan decided to go for... That's the question I was going to ask. Yeah. If Japan had gone for their kick and got a draw with South Africa, do you think that that fed into, like, even in the tiniest way, how Chris Robshaw... Chris Robshaw is walking over there thinking, my God, the Japanese are brave enough to go for a win. Yeah. They back themselves, and yet we're the hosts at home. This is all that's going to be written about. That basically, the Japanese are braver than England at home, and we're supposed to be winning this World Cup. Oh, my God. Like, just this idea... That that analogy is going to be thrown at him for the entire week between then and Australia. Like, is that mad to think that that's? I'd, yeah. I'd say it was in his in his head, but like, it's a pity that it was because it clouded what he should have been thinking about, which is what's the right decision to make here. Yeah, because they're totally different situations that Japan and England face. Japan are hoping to beat South Africa, and, and they, they could get the flight home from the World Cup. The World Cup would have been a success. England are looking to win this thing. England, England, the downside for not scoring the try from what England did was so much bigger than for Japan. I mean, Japan, they lose South Africa, it's what everyone expects. Uh, whereas if they beat South Africa, it's like the greatest moment in their history. They have a slice history. of history. Yeah. Um, whereas for, so you can see the upside is bigger than the downside there. Uh, in England's case, if they win, sure, that's good. But if they lose, they're probably going to get knocked out of the World Cup in the group stage. A massive humiliation. Like their biggest ever humiliation in the Rugby World Cup in their own state. Andy McGeady did. That's what they're looking at. So the downside is massive there. They have to go for the Andy draw Andy McGeady did point out that uh, I think it was a 45, this is an Irish Times piece, a 45% conversion rate going on stats compiled over the last yeah, years. Yeah, from that side of the field from with that the wrong sort, foot. sort of a kick. So it wasn't directly in front of the posts. Yeah, it was a 50-50 shot, say, with Owen Farrell in that kind of form. But uh, 50, obviously a rolling 50, ball is 50, a much lower percentage. Yeah. Yeah. If 50, Plus, if they shot, miss the kick, if they miss the kick, they still have another minute or so to, to try and do that something. That is also true. But if it's a 50-50 shout over the last couple of years, you can bump that up a, no, a good few percent when you take into account how good a kicker on Farrell is generally how well he was going that and day, how yeah. well he was going that day. I mean, I, it's a ridic- it was a ridiculous But moment. so many things went wrong for England. I mean, it boiled down to that decision and then the... the line-out call was incorrect. You throw it to two then. The line-out goes to two and it's basically you've got Wales at six metres to put them out of, uh, put them into touch. Yeah, I mean, but the whole reason the whole reason that was a factor was England completely losing their discipline and the whole reason that Lancaster was brought in was for discipline. He's a reaction to Martin Johnson the whole last World Cup, Manu Tuolagi jumping off a ferry. So he's he's brought in for one specific reason and that's, e- that's exactly what they failed. Well, there hasn't been one ferry jumped off yet, Sai, so, so no. far... Lancaster's ahead and that's even success, if it's success on the ferry jumping to, yeah. <laughs> both Wales and Australia Murph just briefly the last uh, the big sporting event in Ireland over the weekend was the ladies football final which yeah. had a really impressive attendance yeah 31,083 met at the best attended uh, women's sporting event uh, in Europe this year which in and of itself is pretty impressive um, the game unfortunately was not particularly good uh, but that's not really a major problem for Cork, who have... Uh, well, I mean, we, we spoke to Breach Corkery just a couple of weeks ago after they'd won the Camogie, so they've done the they've done the double. And, you know, you are once again talking about uh, Rena Buckley and Breach Corkery mm-hmm. and what they've achieved uh, in women's sports. Like, staggering, absolutely staggering. 17 All-Ireland medals, 
uh, between them. Uh, in, in a re- that's a reasonably gilded career. I mean, if you if they had to call it a day now, you'd have to say I'd be happy enough. That's with what that. they do. I have seen. Uh, I don't think there's a few people right over the weekend. There's a lot left in the court uh, yeah. team. I don't think either of them are going to step away anytime soon. All right. Hope you enjoyed Henry Sheffin today. It was great to get to speak to such a legendary figure. Um, hope you found his, him as engaging to listen to as we did to chat to. Uh, you can have a listen to the football podcast, which is out now. A lot of Stephen Jarrod, a lot of talk of Stephen Jarrod's medical history in that one. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Thanks, Kieran. Ken. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home.